take 407. <laughs> no, come on. It's not that bad. <laughs> Hello and welcome to our Colorado Forest Restoration Institute Demystifying Data podcast, where we break down the lingo, pull back the curtain, and share the CFRI secret sauce on developing science-informed, locally relevant solutions with and for our partners. I'm Hannah Brown, your host and science communication specialist with CFRI. Our question today. Denver Water and the U.S. Forest Service spent over $60 million to protect Denver's water supply. Did it work? I'll spoil the ending for you. The answer is yes. The money spent did reduce fire risk to a full third of the area analyzed. In addition, because of the collaborative structure of the Forest to Faucets Partnership, the utility provider Denver Water saw an immediate 100% match of their invested dollars from the U.S. Forest Service. Now, was there a positive return on investment for the $60 million? In other words, did they end up saving more money and avoided costs from fire than they put in to begin with? The answer to this question is a little more complicated, and of course, it totally depends. A new paper from CFRI with lead author Kelly Jones, a professor at Colorado State University, shows us how it depends. The paper was published in the Journal of Forest Policy and Economics and is titled Societal Benefits from Wildfire Mitigation Activities Through Payments for Watershed Services, Insights from Colorado, and we'll have a link to that in the show notes for you. Today, I'll be speaking with Brett Wolk about some of the important takeaways from this work. Brett is an assistant director of the Colorado Forest Restoration Institute. CFRI is a congressionally authorized program and we're housed at Colorado State University. What we do is serve as a bridge between the research and management communities, and we work to get science incorporated into management decisions and get the concerns of managers on the ground to researchers so their science will be relevant to on the ground work. Brett is also a co-author on the new paper. Welcome. Thanks, Hannah. Really excited to be podcasting with you. Absolutely. This is a first. Uh, Before we get into the details of this scientific paper, could you tell us a little bit about the Forest of Faucets partnership and add some context about why forests are important to water providers like Denver Water? Forests are really important for the great water quality we expect in Colorado. and They do a lot of work to filter water before it even gets to the treatment facilities. Forest vegetation keeps the ground stable and prevents erosion from depositing huge amounts of sediment into streams and lakes after rainstorms. But fire is in the DNA of our forests in the West. But when high severity fire comes through that wipes out a whole bunch of vegetation and cooks the soil, there can be some real consequences for water providers and our society. The Forest of Faucets Partnership originated as a result of the 1996 Buffalo Creek Fire and 2002 Hayman Fires and some of these impacts. Denver Water was really one of the first watershed partnerships to originate from actual wildfire impacts that nearly crippled their system in the late 90s, early 2000s after those fires. So this served as an inspiration and kind of canary in the coal mine wake-up call for utilities around the world and all around the West to pay attention to wildfire risk. Denver and the U.S. Forest Service had to really quickly develop a strategy in response to these major events, and Denver spent more than $30 million dredging sediment from one of their reservoirs and other activities just reacting immediately to these post-fire impacts. And after all that money, it wasn't even really working. So after 10 years of being reactive, 
in 2009, Denver decided to change strategy and really take a much more proactive approach to avoid future impacts to their watersheds. So obviously the first step was to develop a new strategy and Denver Water developed these zones of concern to identify areas at highest risk wildfire impacts. Now, Denver Water collects water over a massive area in Colorado, it's three national forests on over 10 counties and around 4 million acres with a very complex system of reservoirs, diversions, pipelines that move water across the continental divide. The zones of concern really helped Denver and the Forest Service recognize they had many shared values at risk in similar areas and could really leverage their resources by working more closely together within this massive landscape. And this was a foundation of the Forest Deposits Partnership. So in 2010, Denver Water and the US Forest Service agreed to invest in proactive forest management together at a one-to-one -one ratio, putting their money where their mouth is, targeted specifically at reducing the risk of impacts of wildfires on water quality. Then in 2017, the Colorado State Forest Service and Natural Resources Conservation Service were officially added to the partnership to acknowledge the longstanding partnerships and need for redu reducing risk across both federal and non-federal lands. So over the last 10 years, collectively, well over $60 million has been invested in this program. You really explained why watershed partnerships are important and why treatment to protect water resources is really crucial. But CFRI, we're focused on the science of forest management and we never actually use equipment like chainsaws to cut down trees. We seem like kind of a tomato in the fruit basket of watershed protection. How did CFRI become involved in the partnership and what is our role? Tomato, tomato, potato, potato. Yeah, we're, we became involved in 2016 after the first five years of the partnership. And we got engaged because CFRI had been working with several other forestry and wildfire projects throughout Colorado, monitoring the outcomes of those projects, ranging from measuring tree density and individual treatments and hillsides to evaluating uh, overall benefits of larger programs. Denver and the US Forest Service were engaged with our monitoring work through these other programs and saw a value in having CFRI measure the outcomes of the Forest to Fossils Partnership on all of these different levels. After the first five years of the Forest to Fossils Program, the main accomplishments that they could claim were a whole bunch of forests got cut and burned and $30 million went out the door. But they didn't really have any solid answers or data about how much the wildfire risk was actually reduced or was more money and management needed to help reduce risk and had they achieved their goals. So that's where CFRI came in to help put some metrics on the outcomes of this partnership and work with all the partners to help apply science and really improve the outcomes from the partnership moving forward. Okay, great. So now that we have some context, let's move on to the, the paper itself. So this paper is a retrospective cost-benefit analysis, which means that it takes the information about where work actually happened in the forest, the cost of that work, and then uses spatial models and other data to tell us what the impact of that work is going to be on future fire effects. And it's the product of six years of work and 
all the different components of this research really built on each other to try to answer these sort of surprisingly complicated questions about what a return on investment calculation actually looks like for these real world forest management projects. So what are some of the different pieces of research that had to come together to create the stack of models that the authors use? Yeah, you say it very simply, but it is a giant complicated stack of models in this research. So let's see where we can demystify it a little bit. There's really just two main parts to this study. And the first was modeling the connections between forests and watersheds, and really specifically trying to get, represent the ecological processes so that we could measure the impact of forest fires on that source water quality and Denver's really specific uh, water delivery structure and infrastructure. In infrastructure. Our stack of models made direct connections between the ecological processes and then connected those ecological processes to the specific Denver water vulnerabilities. And this is different than a lot of other analysis that overlay but don't directly connect ecological processes in the way we do and resulting in broad analysis about risk that exists in the watershed. We were much more specific in our analysis to connect the processes of forest management fire, erosion, and then that sediment delivery to the actual impacts and made sure the impacts we were looking at were specifically relevant to Denver. For example, there may be really dense forests that are at a high risk of burning really hot, but if this forests are on flat ground where there's little chance of erosion after the fire, fire risk is really not as big of a concern for watershed health in that area and you might get a pretty low return on investment for doing work there. Fire may be a concern for home protection or wildfire habitat, but not the specific watershed impacts we're interested in. The US Forest Service Rocky Mountain Research Station just published a great science you can use that further explains some of these connections between forests and watersheds. Awesome, and we'll have the link to that um, very quick science you can use briefing in our show notes as well. So the second part of the research in the equation was measuring the potential return on investment and costs avoided as a result of fire mitigation to reduce risk of wildfire impacts. So in the first part of the research is about defining what the erosion impacts are going to be. The second part is that depending on where the sediment ends up in the stream, Denver might or might not really care about it and it might not impact their system in different ways. So if you want to get to costs avoided, you need to know what the impacts to the system are. In this study, we got all these people from Denver in a room uh, and asked some hard questions about ranking importance of the different values. And if any one component in their system went offline to a wildfire, what are other ways they could mitigate the impacts? And Denver has pretty much zero tolerance for water not coming out of its taps in, in Denver for its customers. And forest management is really only one option they have to mitigate risk from wildfire. But there's lots of other ways they can mitigate risk in other programs like water treatment, water conservation, water recycling, and even how they collect water from several different watersheds. So if one gets contaminated, they can use clean water from the other. All those help to mitigate their wildfire risk. They think about these scenarios all the time but they hadn't really had, as a, as a full integrated staff, these direct conversations about contingencies uh, before we started asking these questions. So the results of their input and, and this 
feedback are what really drive our analysis based on Denver Water's whole risk portfolio. So the analysis is using the intersection of where post-fire erosion might impact a reservoir or pipeline, along with the importance of that feature for Denver to continue bringing water to your tap. So basically you're able to take this information about ecological impacts of potential fires, and then you're able to incorporate the values of these water providers when you're evaluating the real cost and the return on investment. And you're not just saying where the largest risk exists on the landscape, independent of the social values that we're really talking about and that really matter here when you're talking about um, the services that a water utility provides. But in a, in a partnership like this Forest of Fosses partnership where there are multiple stakeholders, everyone might have slightly different values and that could really complicate things. Yeah, partnerships and relationships are complicated, right? It's not, it's not, it's not some, sometimes it's easier to live by yourself, but uh, it, you know, in, so in contrast to Denver Water, which their first priority is always gonna be water quality. You know, the US Forest Service, they manage water, they definitely manage for water and water quality, but that's in addition to a lot of other values that they manage for. So they have a higher risk tolerance for some watershed impacts than maybe Denver does. And we had similar conversations with the Forest Service partners to balance the unique trade-offs that they make and also inform the risk assessment balanced with that feedback from Denver Water. So the, the stacking the models, the linking of the ecological processes, and connecting this directly to Denver's infrastructure and then incorporating the Forest to Fawcett's partnership priorities is what made this research really challenging. But you know, that's also the fun jigsaw puzzle to figure out and partnership and collaboration. That's why we enter into these complex relationships. So the fact that we're applying these models to measure almost 10 years of actual outcomes of work on the ground that's another component that makes this a unique contribution to the academic literature. So let's sort of dive in a little bit to this stack of models that gets used to actually come to some conclusions in this paper. It's it's can sort of sound a little bit, and maybe the first uh, two or three times you read the paper um, can seem a little bit like you're putting these numbers into kind of a black box and asking people to trust the results. And I often hear this saying that, um, you know, all models are wrong, but some are useful. So can you explain how these models are useful and why we should trust that the results of this work aren't totally wrong? Yep, all models are wrong, but some are useful and we really wanted our work over the last six years to be useful. So this involved linking all of those processes from force treatment to fire behavior, post-fire erosion, sediment transport, um, and those impacts to the actual water collection and delivery system. So to make it data-driven, we use data at as many places in that process as possible. Um, we conducted our own on-the-ground treatment effectiveness monitoring of the forest management, as well as using the locally relevant components of published research from across the West, from folks like Pete Fillet and Scott Stevens to inform the forest and fire modeling components. We hired a master's student, Katie Falco, who studied treatment longevity to learn how long forest management would last on this landscape. Uh, we leveraged a lot of other science from 
people like Lee McDonald and Stephanie Kampf and many others who had actually measured post-fire erosion rates in Colorado to verify with local data the watershed modeling we were doing and make sure we were in the ballpark of what was actually seen. Um, you know, lots of other research on rainstorm intensity and um, things like that, and then use the actual costs of treatments that happen along the Front Range and in this Forest to Fossils partnership to inform the cost estimates. So you have all of this ecological data that's that's real data that gets incorporated into these um, modeling frameworks when you're going to start building this stack. Yeah, and some of it is really direct, where we take some data and then it informs a direct change. Others, we do some modeling and then look at the data and say, yeah, the modeling matches that. So it's probably reasonable and representing reality, which is what models are wrong, but hopefully they're useful because they're close enough to reality to be useful. So when you go to the other side of the equation on the benefits, we also leverage published research and data and the local experiences to measure those economic impacts of wildfire and the post-fire processes on values important to the Forest Fossils Partnership. So the study was really laser focused on water quality impacts, uh, but the values of the partnership were broader than just water to represent those shared values of Denver Water and US Forest Service. So the values that we did incorporate directly in those economic benefits assessment um, were things like water delivery infrastructure, uh, benefits of treatments to homes and other infrastructure, firefighting and fire suppression costs, uh, avoided post-fire recovery and rehabilitation costs, uh, impacts to terrestrial recreation like trails and hiking activities. Uh, there's an endangered butterfly in the area, so what are the avoided impacts on that species, endangered species? Um, so those are some of the things that we really designed the model around. And we had to make some compromises in the modeling framework in order to keep that laser focus on measuring the return on investment for source water protection. So we weren't able to incorporate everything under the sun and things from costs avoided due to you know, redu reduce smoke impacts on public health or ecological benefits of forest management and wildfire or the you know, most tragic impacts like the loss of human life that happens sometimes during wildfire, but also more commonly now in a lot of post-fire flooding and watershed events. And so that's not to say it's not important, it's just wasn't the main objective of our research. So the stack of models we used wasn't designed to be really good at incorporating those values. Um, there wasn't a data point for every building block, but as much as possible, the model assumptions, like I said, were grounded in actual data and verified with kind of local expertise to make the building blocks connecting forest and watershed processes as strong as possible. Ultimately, this was a wide, broad interdisciplinary team. And between all the smart people at the table and the co-authors and other science we relied on, developing the results with managers that work in this area every day. Those are the things that give me more confidence we're in the ballpark doing useful work. If I was leading this research by myself, I wouldn't have much confidence in using this at all. <laughs> really about the importance of kind of getting everyone on your interdisciplinary team to help you out. Um, so now, we have, the, we have the $60 million question sort of hanging over our heads. 
why is there such a large range of return on investment provided in the paper? The values range from $4 million to $100 million, and those are super wide bookends. Why couldn't the authors just provide one number that tells us whether the costs avoided on the back end were greater than the amount invested in the partnership? Because we're scientists and it depends, Hannah. It depends. <laughs> it depends. On the surface, the analysis, it doesn't look like a great investment because that $60 million money bag that you put in at the beginning isn't larger than the money and the benefits you're left with in avoided costs at the end of a lot of these modeling scenarios in the research paper. But when many treatments actually encounter fire and all those co-benefits beyond source water protection are included, that's when you get up into the $100 million return on investment range in our highest return scenario, and it starts to become uh, pretty positive. So what you just mentioned about you know, treatments encountering fire, that is like super crucial to some of these modeling assumptions because, you know, your treatment can only really have an impact on modifying fire behavior if uh, fire and the treatment are in the same place at the same time. So this idea of conditional versus expected fire occurrence has a really huge role in the bookends provided in the paper. Could we dig into that a little bit more and kind of help to understand what's up with that and what that is. What's up? So the economic benefits, they're conditional on fire occurring in the treatments. In order for us to measure a benefit of this force management, fire has to happen in that treatment area. And the treatment has to then modify fire behavior and those post-fire outcomes. The conditional fire occurrence assumes fire will encounter every single treatment in the analysis area. So the benefits are maximized. The expected wildfire probability, on the other hand, takes into account where fire is more likely to happen on the landscape based on vegetation, um, you know, both lightning and human-caused fire starts and those patterns and other factors that determine when fire happens. You know, moving forward with climate change, fires are, every scenario says fires are more likely in our future. So the conditional assumptions and the higher end estimates seem to be a lot more reasonable, but there's lots of variables in there. And it is probably unlikely that every single treatment will encounter fire in the next 25 years. So even the most generous assumptions in the paper are still probably a little unlikely, but it tends to lean that way. Like I said, results in the paper generally do not show a positive return on investment when the only benefit considered is source water protection. We know there are lots of other benefits to forest management beyond protecting just drinking water. So to account for this, we did a sensitivity analysis just to see how much more of these other benefits would need to be included to get a positive return on investment. What we found is by tripling our estimates, that's when you get a positive return in all scenarios, which was anywhere from one to six times your initial return investment in even the most pessimistic scenarios of fire occurrence and treatment effectiveness. So considering all the things we didn't include in this research effort, like smoke impacts on health, just as one example, it's clear the higher end of the benefits estimate is closer to reality, considering the increasing likelihood of fire in the future. So. Brett, was the $60 million worth it or not? <laughs> well, you know, was it perfect? No, we, 
we actually definitely found some areas where, you know, money went to forest treatments well outside their watersheds of concern and were of little to no benefit for Denver water. Things are messy in the real world and on the ground. But I think our research has already initiated more conversations and collaboration within Forest Fossils Partnership to refine their goals and improve the program going forward. Overall, yeah, I think we can say the six million was pretty good investment from a lot of different angles we discussed. What's something you're most proud of in terms of all of CFRI's engagement with the forest to faucets monitoring work? Yeah, it's been a really fulfilling and rewarding, joyful project to work on. And I think one thing that's made the biggest difference over the years is all of the people that we've worked with through this project. And one example is we've had over 60 uh, CSU students work on the Forest of Faucets project over the last five or six years. I show up on that payroll, right, Brett? You're part of it, right? And so- I counted those sticks. <laughs> there's lots of people who get that experience and that exposure to forest ecology and forest management, but also watershed management. And you know, Denver Water has really been gracious and shows up at our training weeks and talks about the interactions of forests and waters and, you know, a lot of the students, you know, like yourself, benefit from that and now are in positions in different, actually implementing these programs. Um, one, we mentioned Katie Fialco earlier, did her master's research as part of this Forest of Fossils program. She's now a forester working with the U.S. Forest Service in the Boulder area, actually getting these treatments done on the ground. So seeing all of the students go through this program and and then going out into the real world and knowing that it had some small part in informing and helping develop who they are, I think that's really been the most rewarding for me because everybody who comes through, I, I'm the lucky one that gets to learn from working with all of these fantastic people that, that we get to have as part of our CFRI team. And now that we have all this information out there and the paper has been published, what are the big takeaways that listeners and participants in the Forest of Faucets partnership would be able to use in their work tomorrow? You know, the partnership did reduce risk with their investments over uh, you know, a third of the area that we analyzed. So the investments significantly reduced risk, but that doesn't mean it's zero and there's still a lot of risk remaining on landscape from wildfires. So we all depend on clean water, but eliminating fire would actually destroy the forests we love and the services we get from them. So there will always be some risk that we have to be willing to accept if we want to coexist with forests in Colorado and the West. You know, fire is a part of these forests and is what they do, but we can have some meaningful impacts to protect critical services for our survival. And I hope that's the take home people get from this paper. You know, the other thing is really to make an impact, we need alignment of good decisions at multiple levels of management. If money is allocated well from the top down, but the treatments kind of suck at, on the ground, it doesn't matter how strategic the high level management is. Also treatments can be awesome on a small scale, but without a strategic strategy, like the zones of concern Denver Water developed, they won't do much good against these processes that are bigger than any 40 acres we're trying to manage at one parcel at a time. A take home 
is the real world is messy and we need to keep up with the cross-boundary collaboration. Partnerships like these where water utilities can combine forces with other land management agencies have the potential to fund work that has an impact for everyone who drinks water from this watershed. This is not just Denver Water's responsibility and everyone has a role to play whether they're using money or not in the process. Um, so how our society interacts with fire can have tragic impacts. You know, thousands of homes burning, people losing their lives is completely unacceptable. In the same way, we can't tolerate water not coming out of our taps. But eliminating fire from our landscape is impossible. And so learning to coexist with fire in a new way moving forward, it's gonna be hard, but it's really our only option. And hopefully this research adds even one degree of improvement to those decisions and the collaboration to move us forward. What is something that people might misinterpret from this study that you wanna to try to demystify and explain to people so folks aren't getting the wrong, folks aren't getting the wrong idea when they, they come away from reading this paper? I think one thing that I would be afraid people might take away from this is that we should cut down every tree and treat everywhere. And I think what we found is, you know, forest and fire management is a really complex problem. All the protecting all of these values that we care about. But just going out there and managing the forest without thought is not the answer either. Um, and so hopefully data like this can make things better by informing decisions about where to do management and how to prioritize and work together, just as much about where management maybe isn't the answer um, of forest management and cutting trees. And maybe there's some other solutions we can look at. And so I think you know, identifying the best places to work is also about identifying places where the no action alternative is maybe uh, smarter and better bang for your buck. Thank you so much for joining me today, Brett. Yeah, this was fun. We should. Do it again sometime, Hannah. What do you say? Thank you for listening to the CFRI Demystifying Data podcast, exploring the forest-faucets partnership and connections between our forests and water. We'd like to thank the members of our CFRI Principles to Practice team who helped bring the podcast to life. Angela Hollingsworth, Andrew Slack, Hannah Brown, Brett Wolk, and myself, Brooke Simmons. The podcast script was developed by Hannah and Brett. Technical editing, production, and original artwork by myself. Funding for the podcast was provided by the Colorado Forest Restoration Institute through the Southwest Forest Health and Wildfire Prevention Act. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast do not necessarily state or reflect those of Denver Water, the U.S. Forest Service, or Colorado State University. Check out the show notes for additional information discussed in this podcast. And it's always a mission accomplished if you've learned something new about connections between our forests and watersheds, and maybe had some fun too. If you'd like to go above and beyond and share our passion to foster more inclusive, equitable, and resilient forests and communities, your tax-deductible donation to CFRI will support our efforts to enhance hands-on work opportunities so more students from non-traditional backgrounds can grow into the professional restoration ecologists of our future. That's all for this episode, folks. Join us next time, where we break down the lingo, pull back the curtain, 
and share the CFRI secret sauce on developing science-informed, locally relevant solutions with and for our partners. Tomatoes.